Chapter Five of Shakespeare, Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nelly. Shakespeare, Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce, Chapter Five, London, Is Gold and Glory. They say, best men are molded out of faults, and for the most become much more the better for being a little bad. It was on the thirteenth of September, fifteen eighty-six, that William and myself first visited our eyes on the variegated wilderness of wood, mortar, stone, and tile of wonderful London. The evening was bright and clear. While a northwest wind blew away the smoky clouds that hovered over the city like a funeral pall, is plain to our view the silver sinuosities of old Father Thames, as he moved in sluggish grandeur by Westminster, Blackfriars Bridge, the Tower, and to Grey Vincent, on his way to the Channel and the Sea. To get a grand view of the town. An old sexton advised us to climb the steeple steps of crumbling St. Mary's, the once felt the tread of the crusaders, and heard the chanting hymns of monks, nuns, and friars five hundred years before. Standing on the broken column of the old steeple, three hundred feet above Primrose Hill, William struck an attitude of theatrical fashion, and uttered the following oratorical flight: "Glorious London." Leviathan of human greed, palpitating hotbed of iniquity and joy, Greek, Roman, Spanish, Saxon, Celt, Scot, Pic, Norman, and Dane, have swept over thee like winged storms, and the mighty Caesar, Julius of old, with the miry, buckled warriors, and one hundred galleons of sailors, triple-oared mariners, defying wave and faith. Have proffered the placid face of Father Thames, startling the loud cry of hawk and beetle, as his royal prose grated on thy strand, or skimmed over the marshes of thy infancy. Yet amid all the racks of human vision, where pagan, Jew, Buddhist, Turk, and Christian struggled for the mastery of gold and power, you still march forward, giant-like and brave. Facing the morning of progress and liberty, carrying thy cross and crown to all lands, and with thy grand flotilla, chattered by Neptune, remain mistress of all the seas, defiant. The roar of thy cannon and drumbeats, heard with pride and glory around the world, sad, how sad to think that the day will come when not a vestige of this wonderful mass of human energy shall remain. Where the cry of the wolf, bad and beaten, shall only be heard, and nature again resume her rustic, splendid desolation. Cities older and far greater than this, dreaming of everlasting endurance, have been long since buried in desert sands, or engulfed in the powerless waves of ocean, lost forever from the rusty records. Of time, the tyrant and tombuter, of man, vain sack of a moment, who promises himself immortality, 
and then disappears like the mist on mountains. A wandering meteors, the spark went darker in the midnight of oblivion. We quickly descended from the steeper, passed by Buckingham Palace, Regent Park, British Museum, through Chancery Lane into Fleet Street, by Logic Hill, under the shadow of Old Better St. Paul's Church, onto the Devil's Haven, near Blackfriars Bridge, where we found gay and comfortable lodgings for the night. It being twelve o'clock, we shook hands with Mac Mullen, the rubicund landlady. The Devil's Haven was a resort for actors, authors, bohemians, lords, and ladies. Who did not retire early to their downing couches. The night we arrived, the haven was crowded, as the actors' annual ball was in progress, and many fair women and brave men, belated by bankers, could not find their way home, and were compelled to remain all night and be cared for by the host of the devil. I told Mag we were Stratford boys, come up to London to seek our fortune, and set the Thames afire with our genius. Plucking the rosy dame aside, I informed her that William Shakespeare was a poet, author, actor, and philosopher, and while he was posing over the counter, smiling at the blooming barmaid, he looked the picture of his own immortal Romeo. Mac told me in a quizzical tone that the town was full of poets and actors, and the surrounding playhouses could hire them for ten shillings a week, with sack and bread and cheese throwing every Saturday night. After hasty supper, I tossed Mag a golden guinea to pay score, as if it were shilling, to convince her that we were off the upper crust of Bohemians, not strollers from Strand, old penny puppets from Eastcheap or Smithfield. After passing back the change, Mag sent a gag and faster porter to light us to the top cockloft of the haven, five stairs up, among the windows and angled gables of the tile roof. A tallow dip and couch, candlelit up the room, which was large, containing two Roman couches with quilts, robes and blankets, a stout table, two oak chairs, a pewter basin, and a large stone jug filled with water. The table seemed to be on the banks of the Thames, for we could see through the two large windows, fleeting lights as if boats and ships were moving on the water, while across the bridge of Old Southwark. Could be seen in the midnight glare as if it were a crowd of jack-o'-lanterns moving in mystic parade. Willem and myself soon found rest in deep slumber, and wafted away into a dreamless realm. Our tired bodies lay in the enfolding arms of Morpheus, until the porter knocked at our door next morning, as the clock of the tower struck the hour of nine. Our first sight of the sunrise in London gave us great expectations of fame and fortune. For surely all we had was glowing expectations. Oft expectation fails, and most oft there were most a promises, and oft it hits where hope is coldest and despair most fits. While William stood gazing out of the roof windows of the Devil's Tavern on the morning, meandering population of London as they passed below on lane, street, and stream, by foot, car, or boat, he heaved a long or sigh. Turned to me and said, "Jack, what do you think of London? I like its word, dash, and run far better than mingling with the rural milkshops and innocent maidens of Warwick. Here we can walk, work, and climb on to the top of the ladder of fame. While you, dear well, would not be bettered in ear by crying kids and tongue-lashing spouse." Brushing away a tear of sorrow, no doubt for the absence of loved one at Stratford. 
He dashed down the stairs and were soon in a jolly whirlpool of table lockers, where a beaming man greeted us with a smiling face, having prepared in advance a fine breakfast, smoking hot from the busy kitchen of the devil. In passing out of the dining room, Mac led us through a back hall into a low, long room, where a number of ladies and gentlemen were assembled about a round table, playing cut the card, spring the top, and throw the dice. Small piles of silver and gold stacked in front of each player, while the king's dealer, oh, fat Jack Stratford, lost or paid all bets and call. Willem and myself were incidentally introduced to the motley gang as young bloods from Warwick, who had just entered London for fame and fortune. The conclave rose with extreme politeness, and Jack, as spokesman, welcomed us to their bosoms, and asked if we would not sit up and take a hand. I respectfully declined, but William, surcharged with sorrow and flushed with ambition, bethought of the guineas in his pocket and bowed, and caught for the dice box. Deuces, one double when six is treble coin. Willem, to the great amazement of the dealer, flung a guinea in the centipod, which was immediately tapped by Jack, while the others looked on in silent expectation. Grasping the dice box, he whirled it in his grasp, rattling the bones in triumphant glee, and threw on the table three sixes, thus abstracting from the inside pocket of the gentleman at the head of the table twenty-seven guineas. Pushing back the coin and dice box, Willem proposed another throw, which was smilingly consented by the child of fortune, and grasping the box, the bard clicked the ivories and flung on the table three aces, which, by the rule of the game, gave Willem never winced or hesitated, but pulling from his waist a buck skin bowed, threw it on the table, exclaiming, There's fifteen guineas I wager on the next throw. The polite Jack replied, All right, sir, take a word for it. William frantically said, I have set my life upon the cast, and will stand the hazard of the die. Then with the round word, he threw three aces again, rose from the table and bodied out of the room like a shot from the blonde busts. I immediately followed in his footsteps and found him joking with the landlady about a couple of infant bull-paps she was fondling her capacious lap. At this juncture, who should appear on the same but Dick Fowl, the first cousin of William, who had been in London a few years engaged in the printing and publishing business. If he had dropped out of the clouds, William could not have been more pleased or surprised, and the feeling was reciprocal. The printing shop of Fowl was only a short distance from the Devil's Haven and we were invited to visit the establishment. On our way, we passed by the Blackfriars, Curtain, Inyard, Paris, and the Devil Theatres, interspersed with hurdy-gurdy concert hall, sailor and soldier, jing and sack wads, where blear-eyed bows and better books filled with each other in fantastic intoxication. Fowl did a lot of reprinting for the variety theatres, issuing bill posters, announcing plays, and setting up type sheets for actors and managers in their daily concerts and dramas for the public amusement. As luck would have it, old James Burbage and his son Dick was waiting for Fowl, with a lot of dramatic manuscript that must be put in praying at once. 
we were casually introduced to the great theatrical magnate Burbage's relatives from Stratford, who were just then in search of work. James Burbage gazed for a moment on the manly form of William and blurted out in his bluff manner, "What do you know?" Quick as a flash, William replied, "I know more than those who know less, and know less than those who know more." Sharp answer, boy. See me tomorrow at the Black Friars anew. We turned aside and left Fowd and Burbage their business. While Dick Burbage, the gate leads the way to the Bruce Head, we re-irrigated our anatomy, and then returned to the printing shop. Fowd informed me that he had given us a great setting up with old Burbage, and would see his partner Greeny, the playwright, and add to our recommendation for energy and learning. We were invited to dine with Fowd that evening at eight o'clock at the Boar's Head Tavern, where Dane quickly dispensed the best food and food of the lower town, and where the wax weeds of all lands congregated in security. At the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. End of chapter five. London, its guilt and glory.